Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word and the privilege to study it. And I thank you that it always applies to our life in some way. You haven't left us blind and without instructions here. You've given us instructions. Lord, help us to follow them and apply to our lives. Thank you again for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you guys want to open to 1 Samuel chapter 1. First Samuel 1. So, as with tradition, I'm going to tell you a joke from my daughter. What sea creature can make you strong? What sea creature can make you strong? A muscle. Evidently, Nate told her that joke. Okay, so First Samuel. First Samuel is a book that bridges the gap between the book of Judges and the kings of Israel. Samuel is the judge prophet. He was both. And he helps to transition the nation of Israel from its theocracy under the judges, where God ruled through the judges, to a monarchy under the kings. First and second Samuel can be divided by its three main characters. Chapters 1 through 7 of First Samuel introduce us to Samuel himself. Chapters 8 through 15 of 1 Samuel are primarily about Saul, the first king. And then chapters 16 of 1 Samuel through all of 2 Samuel, we have the second king of David, second king of Israel, David. Now keep in mind that this was taking place during the time of the judges. And in Judges, the quote in the book many times is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. Um, Many scholars believe this happened very close to the time of Samson. Uh, This book was written by three different people, Samuel the prophet, Nathan the prophet, and Gad the seer. We find that information in 1 Samuel 10.25 and 1 Chronicles 29.29. It says each of those people had a book, and later it was compiled by an anonymous person and was split in two. Um, You'll find that when you read this book, it's actually full of real people. They relate to God in real situations in their lives. And while none of us may be farmers, shepherds, uh, merchants, we can always take the principles that God has for us in the Bible and apply them because we all go through similar things. And as it says in Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. And after we're introduced to the characters in these first three chapters, and we're only going over chapter one, you'll find in the first three chapters that the word Yahweh is mentioned 60 times. And this shows us that God was in the background. He's the main background player. He's working invisibly. And just like he was working invisibly in the lives of these people, he does the same thing in our lives. We may not always see him there working. I mean, sometimes we can, but a lot of times he's back there moving invisibly. Now, verse 1 and 2. There was a certain man from Ramathim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Ephraimite, or hill country of Ephraim, depending on the version that you're reading, 
Um, this is not the tribe that he's from. Elkanah is actually a Levite. They call him an Ephraimite because he lived in that area of Israel. Now it says there was a certain man. And Samuel, like other books of the Bible and other works of God, begins like all those other works. It begins with a certain man. A certain man who's willing to be available for God. Who is doing whatever God wants him to do. And God doesn't need us to accomplish any works for him. He has angels to do that. He's all-powerful. But he has the grace to give us the privilege to work for him, to do the things uh, that he wants done in his will. And he uses those men and women available and have that willing heart to accomplish that work. So we have a certain man at a certain time in a certain place used to accomplish his purpose. Now, this was a real man in a real time, and he had real problems. And you can see he had real problems because he had two wives. And as you see throughout Scripture, those who multiplied their wives multiplied their problems. And there was no exception to this. And as Pastor Bill is always saying, one woman is enough for any man. Now, since it mentions polygamy, we're just going to briefly talk about it. This is not God's ideal. It never was. He shuts it down in the New Testament. But it was something he tolerated because it was in the culture. Um, Jesus spoke about it very plainly when he said, no man can serve two masters. I'm just kidding. That's not what that verse is about. (laughs) But in Matthew 19, when he's talking about divorce, he gives God's ideal. And it talks about, from the beginning, one man, one woman for life. And that was the ideal. Now, we can deduce, and this is an argument from silence, that in verse 2, since Hannah is mentioned first, she's probably the first wife. But since she's barren, Elkanah felt a need to have a second wife because having a legitimate heir was very important in that culture. And you can see the propensity for family feuding and disunity because of this exception that he made. We have a husband who's dividing his affections. He loves one more than the other, yet Peninnah, who he made it an exception for, has children. So he has children from one, but he loves the other. And so he's kind of got a problem. Verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. It says he went up year after year. Now, Ramah is about 15 miles from Shiloh, And again, remember, this is a time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And despite that, Elkanah is actually following God's plan. You couldn't just worship God any way you liked, just like you can't do that now. Uh, According to the law of Moses, Israelites were to go up to the tabernacle where the priests of God were, which is at Shiloh at this time, And it was during a prescribed period of time. It was during a feast of what they would call the um, um, feast I'm blanking on right now. Uh, Fellowship offering. It was for the fellowship offering, also called the peace offering. And Elkanah shows himself a godly man because he was obeying God of his time. Now, Shiloh was a central city in Israel. It was the religious center at this time. This is before the temple was built, and it was the religious center, religious center for 400 years. The tabernacle was built, 
in Exodus, we find the um, we find the designs for the tabernacle in Exodus, and Moses builds it according to the pattern that God gave him. And again, like as I said, once a year, or I didn't say this, but once a year, the high priest would make atonement for the sins of the nation. And though the Ark of the Covenant was hidden, it was a important part of Israel's religious life. Now it mentions Hophni and Phineas. These priests are mentioned by name because they were known among Israel as notoriously wicked priests, and everybody knew it. And if you read 1 Samuel 2, 17 and 24, it gives examples of their wickedness and what they would do. Now they're mentioned here is to show the godliness of Elkanah in contrast to them. Even though the priests were wicked, he still offers sacrifices to the Lord, knowing that the wickedness of the priest didn't make his own service to the Lord invalid. So I want you to consider this argument, because this is the, the modern equivalent. I don't go to church because everyone is a hypocrite, or I don't go to church because I don't like that pastor, or this person's offended me. Just because those things have happened, and I know they've happened. In fact, I just met someone yesterday who went to a Calvary Chapel up north, and when he was going to college, he got pulled aside into the Church of Christ, which is not a good church. And it left him with a bad taste in his mouth. He's not been back to church since. So it's now my goal to find a way to bring him back to church. But those things have happened to push people out of the church. You may have a disagreement. You may have been offended. And again, you may have been sucked into a cult. But it doesn't make your service invalid to the Lord. He still wants to see you here. He still wants Hebrews 12, 24, and 25 to apply that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves. It mentions the Lord of hosts in this verse. And that's also could be translated Lord Almighty in some versions. That word in the Hebrew, or those words, are used 281 times in the Bible. And this is the first time it's mentioned. He can also be translated the Lord of armies. So what we're going to see in that verse, or in this verse, in the chapter, is that a God who commands tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of angels is going to stoop to comfort one broken heart in this chapter. It's going to be one individual life, and in this case it's Hannah. But still today, even though we're all here, even though there's millions of Christians around the world, he ministers to each of us individually. We can go to him privately, and we can pour out our hearts to him, as Hannah is going to in a few verses. Verse 4. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Hannah, I'm sorry, to his wife Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. So whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, they brought sacrifices during this yearly visit, but it wasn't the sacrifice for sin. There were actually several different sacrifices, and as I mentioned, this is the peace offering or the fellowship offering. Now, for this sacrifice, what you'd do is you would bring your, your bull or whatever you're bringing to the Lord to burn on the altar, and a portion would be taken for the Lord to burn on the altar. A portion would be given to the priesthood to support the priesthood. And then the last portion, what they did is basically our version of a barbecue. The whole family was there. They got together, they cooked it, and they basically had a big get-together. It's kind of a combination of Thanksgiving and July 4th or Memorial Day or something to that effect. So if you can imagine getting your entire family together for one of those feasts, fellowshipping and enjoying each other's company. 
Now you may say, you've never been to ours because you've never met Uncle Bob or Uncle Ron or that one troublemaker in the family who's always stirring the pot or always trying to cause trouble. That one black sheep in the family. The person who's being divisive or purposely irritating. Now when we read verses 6 and 7, we'll see that this is exactly how this was happening for Hannah and Peninnah. There was division, as there always was, but this is a more public version of that because of where they are. Hannah might be receiving her double portion, which is what she does receive, and Peninnah might interrupt and start bragging about, because you know, not that it's wrong to brag about your family, but, because I never do that, but Hannah or uh, Peninnah might say, oh, look at young so-and-so, and look what they were just doing, and did you see little Julie, the, my little princess, or whatever, and Peninnah had children, so she had kids to brag about, and she was doing it in front of Hannah, who couldn't have any, and it was breaking Hannah's heart, and so Peninnah would imprint her role as a mother in the family, and even though Hannah had this double portion, she had this symbol of her husband's love, she was brokenhearted because that's, that was not all she wanted. She was so sick and miserable, she couldn't even eat it. And this is what was happening to Hannah every year. Verse 5. But to Hannah, as I mentioned, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. There was no greater shame in the Old Testament for a woman than to be barren. Oftentimes the woman felt that she had let her husband down, she had let herself down, she had let her God down. In Deuteronomy it talks about those who aren't following God as they should, that they're going to be barren. So no doubt Hannah is thinking in her mind, okay, I've done something. What have I done? And trying to figure out what that was. She didn't see God's bigger plan. Verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. So as though the barrenness wasn't bad enough, again, she's being provoked. She's being insulted. Words constantly attacking her about her worth as a wife who couldn't provide an heir. Verse 7. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. So there she was at the house of God, a house of worship. There's a feast set before her, and she couldn't enjoy it because she had conflict in the family. There's conflict in the home. Now, do you ever have a circumstance, or maybe before church, or maybe on the way to church, where you're argumentative with your spouse or your children or whoever it might be, like cats and dogs, and then when you get to church, you find it hard to fellowship and enjoy what the Lord has for you in the study and the worship and the fellowship because of that conflict. You could be driving to church and screaming at each other. You could get out of the car and you want to slam the door, but you can't because you're spiritual now. <laughs> so you put on your church smile and you walk in shaking hands with your brothers and sisters and try to pretend nothing's happened. And Usher says, how are you doing? And you say, great, everything's fine. You get inside and God's laid out a spiritual feast for you. The word is there, the worship is there, the prayer is there, the fellowship with your brothers and sisters, but you can't really enjoy it. And you're going to be like Hannah here. 
because you have that church smile on the outside, but inside you could be distraught or torn apart. And just so you know, I'm not above this. This has happened to Jen and I before, and I don't hide things well. So when I have a look on my face that says I'm irritated, it's probably right. Um, And we've been called on it before. So... That was perfect timing. Okay. So it says, because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Now it's interesting and even mystifying that it does repeat this twice in verses 5 and verse 6. The Lord closed her womb. So we know that this trial is from the Lord. And it also begs the question, why should Peninnah who seems to kind of be of a bad character. She doesn't seem like a nice lady at all. Why is she blessed with children? And that's always an argument. God, why are you blessing the wicked? Why, why does it look like they're succeeding? And then we look at Hannah, who seems to be of a good character, and she's cursed with barrenness. Lord, how come we're doing all these things for you, and yet we're enduring all this trial, all this pain? But often we don't understand God's ways in it. We don't realize that until we don't realize until he has finished accomplishing it what his purpose actually is. So even though it was painful to Hannah, God had a purpose in it. And sometimes we think as long as we're always walking right with the Lord, as I said, it's easy to think we should have this nice, comfortable life. But God allowed it to come in for a purpose, this pain. He had a plan. He wanted to fulfill it. And it could only be fulfilled and come about if he let it come into her life. And it's not that he wants us to endure pain, but he uses that result of sin as a way to build character and growth and fruit in our life. And she had probably prayed dozens of times, hundreds of times, Lord, please give me children. But he didn't grant it yet because he wanted to bring her to a specific, remarkable place in her walk where she just trusted. And some will say, you don't know the pain I've been through. And I don't know any pain that anybody's been to, not really, uh, because a lot of us keep that inside. But God knows the heart. God knows everything. God knows pain we're going through, even when we don't show it to others. But he doesn't ask us to try to figure out why it's happening. He asks us to trust him through it. Verse 8. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? So he said, what's wrong? Everything's okay. Don't worry about it. Why are you crying? You've got me. So now she has adversity from a rival, and her husband just doesn't get her. And I could be mistaken, but I think that's what many wives think at some time about their husbands, is he just doesn't get me. And I find this funny because husbands always try to say the right things to cheer up their wives, and sometimes they just make it worse. And you thought she was crying before. She's probably sobbing now. And Elkanah does what most guys do. And this is probably, you could probably ask my wife, this is probably what I do, and that's offer logic, because logic is reason, free from emotion. And guys don't get that. But it says in 1 Peter 3, 7 that we're supposed to dwell with our wives with understanding. 
which means we're probably not going to understand them. We're just supposed to try to move through it, for lack of a better term. And I'm, again, I'm not criticizing Elkanah's response uh, because I can relate. Jin could be talking to me about something. And it could be important, it could be common, whatever the case may be. It depends on what the subject is or how it comes up. And I could be thinking, oh, God, help me answer the right way. <laughs> I just need a little bit of wisdom. And the amount of relationship books that we've read together, I try to glean something to hopefully pull me through it. But you know, guys forget things very easily. And sometimes I'm like, oh, dang, what did that book say? I can't remember. But anyway... It's how we're wired. We revert to logic. And so you must forgive us. Um, And it's not that she didn't think her husband was a good man. I'm sure she thought he was a great man, but she couldn't be everything for him. She couldn't be the son that she wanted. He can't fulfill the maternal desire that she had. Verse 9. Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. I think it's important to note she wasn't bitter at the Lord here. There's no indication that she was. She was bitter of soul. She was broken. She was worn out inside. But it's good to note that she knew where to pour out her soul. She poured it out to the Lord. She's not bitter towards the Lord, but she is pleading with him. And most people at some time in their life, they know anguish. They know bitterness of soul. And it can drive some people to reject God altogether because of the extremity of their situation. They can shake their heads at God in unbelief or shake their fist at him. I don't know if you've seen Bruce Almighty before, but there's this one scene where he says, God is a mean kid sitting on a hill with a magnifying glass, on an anthill with a magnifying glass. He could just kill me, but he'd rather burn my feelers and watch me squirm. And that's the attitude that a lot of people have. God's just trying to torment me. He wants to see me writhe in pain. But that's not the case. But that's always the temptation of what we could believe. And that's probably what was presented to Hannah as well. She could have reasoned. She could have prayed over and over for children. But what it had gotten her? Nothing. So why should she pray to God now? That could have been her excuse. She had a husband whose heart was divided. Her home, instead of a place of rest, was a place of trial. Her hope for children had been disappointed, and her husband just didn't get it. So with all these things against her, what did Hannah do? So instead of turning from God, she wept, she prayed, and she took it all before the Lord, and she just, she gave it to him. She said, Lord, I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm brokenhearted. I'm worn out. I don't want to do this anymore. But here, you you just take it. We need to ask ourselves, Whatever you've been through, are we going to live in bitterness of soul over things we've had to endure? Are we just going to let it go and give it to God? Like I said, I don't know anybody's home life. I don't know your work life. I don't know what a lot of people are going through. And maybe you come at Sunday with a saintly smile, covering a sorrowed and grieved heart. But whatever it is, we should never allow our circumstances to drive us from God, but straight into his arms where we give it all to him. Verse 11. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, and do not forget your servant, but give her a son, 
Then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, on the surface, this sort of looks like a deal. I want to make a deal with you, God. And while I can't necessarily speak for everybody, I know that many people have tried to make this kind of prayer to God before, including me. Lord, I have great plans for that lottery money. I will give you half. Lord, if you give me that new car, I will drive people to church. There's, there's deals that we make, and those are extreme. But there are other deals that we try to make from time to time. Now, it seems like this is what Hannah is doing. But why would this prayer be different? Hannah is dedicating this child before he's even born. She's dedicating him to God to give him to the Lord. Now, in Israel, children were already dedicated to God automatically from birth. And this happens to any of them, just because they were Israelites. There was a, soon after every child was born into a Jewish home in the ancient world, they were dedicated to God with a special sacrifice. If it was a male, it was redeemed with a a bull or whatever the family could afford. If it was a, a female, she was redeemed with a male lamb as well. There was a sacrifice to redeem it. They were special to God. They were sanctified, set apart from the womb. And so they were already special in that way. Now, secondly, Elkanah was a Levite. The Levites were the special priestly tribe of Israel. So any male born to Elkanah would have been a priest, and that would have made him especially dedicated to God in a second way. Between the 30th and 50th year, a Levite would have been dedicated to the service of the Lord. So for 20 years of that Levite's life, he would have been dedicated to the Lord. So any male born to Hannah would have been dedicated already. So why would Hannah be dedicating him? What she is talking about is a deeper and more complete dedication than what is already known. And she does this in two ways that we see in verse 11. One is all the days of his life. She's not just going to give him to the Lord from the 30th to 50th year, but for his entire life. She said, that's not good enough. Lord, I will give him to you for his entire life. He will be given to you in a deeper, stronger way. And so this is more than a deal with God. Now, the second way is, it says, no razor shall come upon his head. And this is significant because Hannah is referring to the vow of the Nazarite mentioned in Numbers chapter 6, I believe it is. The, now, the vow of a Nazarite was determined before, beforehand how long it would be. And usually it was not a child making this, the parent. Although in the case of Samson, God determined he was a Nazarite. And here, Hannah is saying, I will give him to you as a Nazarite. But an adult might be a Nazarite for 30, 60, 90 days. Or if he was really spiritual, it might be a year. But a Nazarite for an entire life, that was rare. I believe there's only three or four mentioned in scripture. And being a Nazarite involves three things. One is they will not eat during the time of the vow anything from a grapevine. No wine, no grape juice, no raisins, no grapes. Anything you could make from the vine, they can't have. The reason being is because wine comes from the grapevine and grapevine or wine, it speaks of pleasure the pleasures of life. And the Nazarite said, I'm going to separate myself from the pleasures of this life so I can serve the God in a more complete and dedicated way. So they're separating themselves in that way. The second part is 
they will not, during the days of their vow, go near a dead body. So they won't go to a funeral, they won't touch a dead body, because death is a consequence of sin. And I want to show, or the Nazarite wants to show, that they are specially dedicated to God, separating themselves from anything that's been touched by sin. The third way is they would not cut his or her hair during the time of the vow. This is the public way of showing everybody that they have taken the vow of the Nazarite. Everyone will know because of their unkept hair. So Hannah's dedication is not just a Nazarite, but a Nazarite for his entire life. This boy, who would be Samuel, would be dedicated no matter what. And Hannah is giving him in a complete way. In a similar way, for us, we may be or consider ourselves dedicated right now. And you could say, well, of course I'm dedicated. I'm sitting here listening to you. I'm coming to church. If I wasn't dedicated, why would I be here at all? But we should always ask ourselves, just so we don't get into that rut, is there a deeper commitment that God is asking from me? Is there something else he's looking for me to do? Am I fulfilling the spiritual gift that I have? I read a fact the other, maybe it was yesterday, on Pinterest, that said, uh, I know, it was Pinterest. I love Pinterest. But um, it was a fact that said 70% of people, and this is regular people outside of the church, don't even know what they're good at. They don't know what they want to do. They're not sure what they really like. And that's just in people who, you know, there could be someone at McDonald's who likes physics, and he could build the next cold fusion or whatever science thing there is that's, spectacular and yet he's flipping burgers and so if there's 70 percent of people outside the church who don't know what they're good at how many people inside the church don't realize what their spiritual gift is and they're not exercising it so you just got to find out is god asking something deeper is there more that he's looking from you it would be easy for hannah to say i don't need to dedicate my child to the lord he's already dedicated just as it's easy for us to say i'm already dedicated God may be trying to draw something more out. It's difficult and even impossible to understand the reasons behind the plan that God has for us. But God wanted this little boy to be dedicated in a special way. And he had to allow Hannah to come to this place of desperation. So you must ask yourself if there is something that you've gone through or you may go through Maybe God is looking for something else. Maybe he's trying to draw us out. This prayer of Hannah, this prayer brought Hannah's desire and God's plan into unison. And an important aspect to having prayer answered is to have your will and God's will aligned so they're the same. Verses 12, 13, and 14. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. So it's another sensitive man in her life. (laughs) Verse 14 says, And he said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. When it says she kept on praying, the Hebrew is literally as she multiplied to pray. She kept praying. She didn't just give God a short blurb and say, okay, I'm done with it. I hope that's good. She literally fulfilled 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. She multiplied her prayers at the altar, at the tabernacle. And this is a 
a bare summary of Hannah's prayer. And like most prayers in the Bible, that's really what we get. There are people who seem in the Bible like Daniel to be praying for hours. And yet we have 10 verses. I don't think he recited that over and over. I think it's a summary. Just like Hannah's prayer here is a summary. It says her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. We don't need to make our prayers vocal for God to hear us. God hears us when we pray in our heart. And it's not wrong to pray vocally. Um, for me, a lot of times when I pray vocally, it's not for, it's not for God's benefit. Honestly, it helps keep me awake because I'm in a position that's very easy for me to go to sleep. And so, and there's different positions for prayer, standing, kneeling, hands in the air, whatever, however you want to do it. The Bible has so many different ways to do it. It's not the position of your body that matters. It's the attitude of your heart. But like I said, for me, it's easier to be vocal. Um, And you've got to pray in your heart the way that God asks you to pray so that just so we can pray. A lot of us don't do that on a regular basis because it's difficult. And there's also those prayers, as it says in Romans, that they're so difficult they can't even be articulated. And I suspect that Hannah's prayer, some of it was like that. It says in 826 that the Spirit hears groanings that cannot even be uttered. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said, It is better to have a heart with no words than words with no heart. Now, Eli thought she was drunk. And again, very sensitive, obviously. But the spiritual condition of Israel at the time must have been very low for him to even consider that she was drunk. Now, how do we get that? So for the high priest to look at a woman praying with tears, maybe rolling down her cheek, probably gesturing, probably being emphatic. You know, Jews like this all the time, like Italians. But she's probably emphatic in her prayer. She's very heartbroken. The priest looks at her and he goes, oh, great. There's another drunk woman at the tabernacle. So Israel's obviously ebbed. And we know because it's taking place during the times of the judges that it has ebbed. Everyone did what they thought was right. And additionally, if you look at chapter 2, you realize these are the types of women that his son are bringing around the tabernacle. So it's not really a leap for Eli to jump to this conclusion. Verse 15. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Now back in verse 10, we see her in anguish and bitterness of soul. Now she's pouring it out to the Lord. And again, this is what the Lord wants us to do if we're in bitterness and anguish. Bitterness is that, it's that invisible acid that eats away at your soul if you don't let it go, if you don't get rid of it. God doesn't want us to let it, or I'm sorry, God doesn't want us to hold it in, but he wants us to pour it out and let it go. Verses 16 and 17. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Now it seems to me that Eli apologizes for his hasty assumption, realizing he jumped to a conclusion. I'm sure his apology was kind of the embarrassed apology that someone gives when they ask a woman if she, when she's due, when she's not even pregnant. I get that. That's the impression. But secondly, I think he's also shocked by her character and humility because that's not what he's used to. She's not the typical woman. And without really even knowing her prayer, he asked God to grant it. 
verse 18. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. When she says that, that's basically her Hebrew way of saying, amen, I receive that. I'm going to take that. I believe it. So she accepts Eli's response as God granting her position, her petition. And if you look, it says her face is no longer downcast. Nothing has changed. She's not pregnant. Yet her outlook has changed because she believes God's promise. And there are, there are those who can't do what Hannah's done. A lot of people, they need to tangibly have that promise in their hand before they're comforted, before they believe. They'll say, I believe when I see it. But Hannah doesn't do that. And I don't recall if she's mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith. I think she is. But if you look at everybody mentioned in that chapter, it says they believed the promise, and yet they did not actually attain it. And that's what we're supposed to do. We see the promises of God. I mean, they have those little promise books that you can get. They're usually free somewhere. But you can realize that. You can look at it and go, God promised it. I'm going to believe it by faith, just like Abraham did, just like Hannah did. In fact, if you want to look at God's promises, if you type in God's promises on Pinterest, they will come up. Um, I've tried it. Um, But like Hannah, we're to receive his word with faith and to believe his promise. Verse 19. Early the next morning they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. They arose and worshiped before the Lord. Hannah, again, wasn't pregnant yet, but she could worship because she believed God's word. Hannah really shows how we regain the joy of fellowship in the house of the Lord by pouring out our our heart to the Lord and then by receiving his word with faith. Now, it says the Lord remembered her. And as I mentioned on Wednesday, this is actually an anthropomorphism. God doesn't forget anything. He's all-knowing. This is our human figure of speech, applying it to God so that we can try to understand someone who's not understandable in a complete way. Because God is, he's, he's infinite. And finite man has to come up with these terms and be able to try to understand him. And so why it may not perfectly reflect what's going on, it comes as close as it can in human terms. We, we actually do similar things when we look at animals. We apply human characteristics to them. You look at dolphins, and they always look like they're smiling. I don't think that's always the case. Um, but we do that. Uh, animals, dogs, cats, we apply human characteristics to them. Verse 20. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Samuel is a pivotal man in scripture. And like I said, he's the last judge. He's the first prophet. He bridges the times of the judges with those of the kings. There's three verses I'm going to read to you that show his importance, not just to the Jews, but to God in general. In Psalm 99.6, it says, 
Moses and Aaron are among God's priests, and Samuel among them that call upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. In, in context, they're talking about, I believe they're comparing you know, people who are ungodly and, and God doesn't hear. And yet these people, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, they lived in such a way where God heard their prayer because of how they lived, because of their importance. Jeremiah 15.1. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet of Judah right before they're taken away to Babylon. And God is basically telling him to prophesy against them that they're going away into judgment. And he's telling them, judgment's coming no matter what. There's nothing you could do to stop it. And he says, then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, showing their importance, even if Moses, the symbol of the law, and Samuel, the symbol of the prophet, stood before me and asked for me to relent, I would not. I would send Judah away still. Samuel had sway with God. Acts 3.24 says, Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. There were prophets before Samuel. There's prophets after Samuel. But Samuel really began the order of the prophets. He actually had a, a prophet school or college, for lack of a better phrase for us. Uh, just as Moses represented the law, Samuel represented the prophets. Verse 21 through 23. When her husband Elkanah went up with his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him to the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. In those days, it was customary to nurse a child between two and four years. I don't know if she pushed that because she knew she was giving him up for life. Doesn't say that, so. But at least four years, most likely. And Elkanah, <clears throat> excuse me, Elkanah reminds her, don't forget the vow. The Lord will make good his word. Verses 24 to 28. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. Now, some scholars believe that Eli is between 80 and 90 years old at this time, and he's been presented with a, possibly a four-year-old boy to take care of. Like the ultimate grandpa. Uh, verse 26. And she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord, for that his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. She gives him to the Lord. And I think it's extremely notable. Hannah's commitment to fulfill her promise. It's always easy for us to make promises to God. It's easy to say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But it's not always easy to fulfill it. And her being the typical mother, and this is her first child, and she doesn't have any other children yet as far as we know, especially if she's weaning them this whole time. This is her baby, and yet she follows through with her commitment. And we have to imagine... 
for Elkanah also, the difficult difficulty they had in giving it up, him up. They had to fulfill their vow at great personal cost to them, and it's evidence of the godliness of both of them. I think another idea that presents itself here is many times we feel, and I feel about my kids, that these are mine. And in a sense, they are. They have 23 of my chromosomes, and they act like me sometimes, which is good and bad. But Hannah realizes what we should all realize, and that our children, they're not ours. They belong to God. The reality is that they're God's children. He gives them to us to take care of. He has given us our children as a sacred trust to raise them and nurture them in the admonition of the Lord. They're on loan. And we need to do the very best we have, we can in the years we have them, because he is going to want them back. We have a stewardship over their lives. And as parents, and this is the frightening part for me, as I have to give account of what I've done, because I know I am not the perfect father. But they're his. They're not ours. And when it comes to their conduct and the things that we allow them to do, I think it's important that when we are doing raising them or grandchildren or, or whoever, whatever child you have an impact on, we need to think about if Jesus was standing with us, what would we really allow our children to watch and do? Would there be things we would change? Are there things we would let them watch, would not let them watch, listen to, not let them listen to, places we wouldn't let them go? One reason it says in Malachi that God hates divorce is that he's looking for godly heritage. He wants us to raise our children. He wants us to spend that time and dedicate that time to them. There's a phrase that said it takes a village to raise a child, and I don't really believe that. I think it takes a mom and dad who are committed to raising their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and teaching them God's values. Now it says he worshiped the Lord there. Worship is a repeated characteristic of this family. Three times in this chapter, it says they worshiped. Even in difficult situations, they can worship the Lord. They praise him. They praised him on the day they gave their son away. It seems like every place, every time they praised him in this chapter, it was under difficult circumstances. And a lot of times I brought up, you know, sometimes it's hard to come to church when you're having dissent in the family or problems. But a lot of times you have to come and just worship anyway. You may start with just singing the song, but as you focus more and more on the throne of God, you get to the place of worship where you need to be. If she was crying the day she was praying for him, how much more do you think she was crying now when she had to leave him at the tabernacle door? And yet through it, she worshipped God. So, what is God saying this morning? One is, are you that certain man or woman that God can use? Are you willing to let him use you in whatever way he wants to? Two, don't multiply wives. That's not really one. Uh, Three, 
don't let brothers or sisters you may disagree with keep you from worship with God and fellowship with your other believers in Christ. And four, is God looking for a deeper dedication in our lives? Is it could be in general, it could be specific. His spirit has to guide you to that because he hasn't spoken to me about any of you about what he wants you to do. But if your heart is open to it, then he will speak to you what that is. And you have to remember that when that happens, it could be like Hannah. It could be him maneuvering you to a place of reliance and trust. And it's in his timing when your life could be frazzled, rattled, and miserable. But whatever circumstances you go to, make sure those circumstances send him, send you running to his arms. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again for your word, how valuable it is to us, how applicable it is in every situation, the privilege that we have to read it. Lord, the privilege of the fellowship of the saints that we have here this morning. I pray that we would take advantage of that, that we would share with our brothers and sisters not just what touched our hearts this morning, but what you've been speaking to us this week in our personal devotions. And that is really what fellowship is, speaking what you're working through in our lives. Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name.